0: We're looking at John chapter 14, John chapter 14. If you haven't been with us, let me tell you what we're doing. We're going through the Gospel of John. We've come to this section in chapter 14 that really extends all the way to chapter 17. The setting is in the upper room. It's the night before Jesus is to be crucified. He is teaching his disciples, preparing them for what will come next. And not just those disciples in the other room, as he'll explain in chapter 17. It is for all who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, follow him, and be his disciples. These words, then, are directly applicable to us today. We'll look at them in the context, though, in which they are given. The method here, at least, as we read through this section, it can be a little hard to follow because Jesus is bringing up a topic, moving to another and then another, and then coming back, circling back to where he began. And so as we go through this, we'll have to look at it in a more linear way, but recognize that these topics are repeated not only in this chapter, but also through chapter 17. Last time I was here preaching, we talked about the inseparability of love and obedience as a theme. If you're in chapter 14 of John, notice verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 21, whoever, whoever has my commandments and he, he that keeps them loves me. 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. It's said a little differently. That's a theme that resounded through there. And the point is simply this. If you are a follower of Christ... If you say you love Jesus, don't put a bumper sticker on your car that says honk the horn. <laughs> Obey him. Don't call him Lord, sovereign Lord and Master, and ignore what he has commanded you to do. Love and obedience are linked together. But someone comes to Christ, confesses him as Lord, They submit to his sovereignty as indeed Lord. In our text now, the theme I want to look at (coughs) that's kind of interwoven in this text is this idea that God will have an intimate communion with his disciples. He will literally dwell with his saints forever. Notice verse 23. To those who love me and keep his word, right? That, that is a genuine Christian. Here's the promise given. We, Jesus speaking, of him and the Father, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That statement of how this is going to be carried out in the context of this teaching is through The sending of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus explains to his disciples, this is how God uniquely manifests himself to his beloved, who are the ones who love him, who keep his commandments. Think through that as we read this text in its context, but we're going to focus on the sending of the Holy Spirit in relationship to dwelling with the saints. Verse 15, and we'll read through And the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you will also live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas Still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. (coughs) You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that we would see and savor all that you are. I pray that you would give enlightenment to those that are outside the fold and bring them in. And for those that are in, I pray that they would feast on you and indeed be satisfied this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now this morning, if you came to church, you hadn't been uh, to, to this congregation, perhaps you wonder why aren't we doing a Christmas special. It is Christmas week after all. And sometimes we do break away and do that. Uh, Oftentimes we go through a book of the Bible. We're going through the Gospel of John. And you know... It's not hard to preach about Christ from the scriptures. (laughs) He's all through it. That is the scarlet thread that, from the beginning in Genesis all the way through Revelation. And here it isn't hard to find it at all, particularly in this text. If you notice this idea here in verse 23, providentially here is our theme where God promises that we will come and make our home with him. God has promised in a fulfillment to dwell with man. Now, we've sung about that during this Christmas season. And you even heard a beautiful rendition sung on the instruments today. Um, O come, O come, what? Emmanuel, God with us. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy given 750 years before the incarnation of Christ. It is the prophet Isaiah, and perhaps you've heard that text before in Isaiah 7 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign, and behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, which is God with us. This is in context in Isaiah, it's the only time this Emmanuel word is actually used in the Old Testament. King Ahaz of Judah was told by God that God would provide a deliverance for him. And by the way, this pictures a future deliverance from a spiritual enemy sin and the reality that the consequences of sin is death. And so here is a prophecy about a deliverance that indeed God would dwell This prophecy is partially fulfilled in Isaiah's day as a type, pointing to a greater and more perfectly fulfilled, that is, in every aspect, including the virgin birth, that was announced by the angel to Joseph concerning Mary in Matthew chapter 1. The only other time this is actually mentioned in the Bible is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 In that context, he says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. By the way, Jesus means deliverer. He will save his people from what? From their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew interprets which means God with us this is the only places this Emmanuel is mentioned here in scriptures. It's commonly sung at this time of year because it is significantly important. In chapter 14 of John, Jesus explains how this is going to be completed in the life of the believer. He begins in chapter 14. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He's going to go away. And they're going to face great difficulties. In this world, beloved, you're going to face tribulation. And if anyone doesn't understand that yet, (laughs) we don't need many more reminders, do we? But Jesus Christ has overcome the world. He's the only one. Put your faith, put your hope, put your trust in anything else and you will fail. Christ wants his followers then, because they will go through great tribulation and difficulty, to have peace. Peace in the midst of great turbulence and violence and tumult, disappointment, disease, death, destruction of all kinds, you're not immune from that. And there will be no vaccine that will cure all. Mitigate whatever you need to do, but recognize you're not going to resolve the problem because the root of it is in sin. And the wages of sin is death. And that's your greatest enemy, and there's only one who has conquered it. It is Jesus Christ. In him you will find safety, you will find it in no other place. He wants his disciples to have peace in this midst of great difficulty. He's going to be leaving them, but he's not going to leave them alone. Nevermore will God leave his people alone. So in verse 26 in our text he explains how that is going to come about in the life of his disciples, the believers, the regenerate, the Christians. Verse 26, the helper, he calls them, the Holy Spirit. He's going to come, whom the Father and will send in my name. He'll teach you all things, bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. <clears throat> peace I leave with you. What's the peace? The helper. The Holy Spirit. I'm not going to leave you peace like the world does. No. He's going to send the Holy Spirit who will dwell with his people, Emmanuel, not just this day, but forever. It says... I'm going away, verse 28. So he knows they're going to be troubled and fearful, verse 27. But he's not going to leave them alone. He'll send the helper. And if you love me, that is, if you truly love Christ, you would be glad that he would go away. Why? Because the Father is greater than I. In what sense is the Father greater than him in his glory? Christ, glory was veiled in the incarnate flesh. He never gave it up. It wasn't diminished in that sense. He always retained every bit of it. We would get a glimpse of it from time to time. But veiled in flesh, incarnate deity, the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. That's who Jesus Christ is. But people looked on him. As if this isn't God. But now the fullness of his glory would be made known as he ascends on high to take his throne. And so in his teaching here to his disciples then and now, he explains... Uh, The promise of the Holy Spirit and describes this person that that he is sending and what this presence of the Holy Spirit would be like. I don't have time to do any of this justice, but I'll see what I can get through. And if I don't finish, you can come see me again next week. Or even better, just read the scripture and spend all week in it. It's a good place to dwell. Let's look first at this promise that Jesus makes to his disciples In verse 16, he says, I'm going to give you another helper. That's the word that is translated for us in our text, helper. The word means advocate, it means intercessor. This is the one who is sent by the Father and the Son that fulfills the roles that Christ would do during his earthly ministry. James Boyce comments on this Greek word. He says the first two syllables, per, per, para, kletos is the word in Greek. He says the first two syllables, para, are the Greek word meaning alongside of. We have it in English, such as parable, you've heard, or paradox, parallel. Kletos is the second it syllables it it means called the greek word for church is ecclesia by the way so the idea of, of this word then means one that is the helper to think in this term one who is called alongside of another person's helper he goes on to note the latin vulgate the word is translated not by a variation on our word comforter but on the word for advocate. It means vocare, that is to, to call. And so it is one who is called alongside another person to be their advocate in Latin. The idea is this one that is going to come will come to the defense of those who are his beloved Note also our text says, not only is he our advocate and intercessor and helper, but also says, I will, he is a another. That is another of the same kind. Another not in the sense of someone different. It is as if Jesus himself is there. He's going away. They're going to be in great trouble. And so he sends one who is of his same essence. That is God. Notice verse 18, and, and I've thought about this now in context more. I like this verse verse 18 It's meaningful to me and have been for quite some time, where Jesus tells his disciples this, "I will not leave you as orphans. Have you ever been abandoned by somebody, by a friend, family member, or even a parent? I know what that's like. it's awful. You feel like an orphan abandoned Christ says he's not going to leave you as orphans notice he says I will come to you and so in my mind my first thoughts is okay well he's leaving them as if they're orphans but he's going to come back that's his second coming right well that is true he is coming back but when he says I'm not going to leave you as orphans I think this is more than the idea of just his coming back he is coming back but he's not going to leave them alone He's not going to abandon them. He's going to do what? He's going to send another helper. Another of the same essence. Another of the same kind. It is as if he never left. The Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Jesus was advocating for them. He was intercessing for them. He was helping them. And they would not be left alone like a bunch of orphans to wait for for the return. But he would give them... The Helper, He would send the Holy Spirit. Verse twenty-six. He's praised the Father that He would send them. He's going to teach them, like Christ taught them. That's what it means to be a disciple, right? A, lear, a learner. Who are you learning from? Your teacher. So now the Holy Spirit would fill this role of teacher for all the disciples. And bring to remembrance what I've said. It would be a dynamic work to bring that about to their mind. To see and savor the significance. The Spirit then would exalt and glorify the work and the ministry of Christ by empowering his disciples to overcome sin. How will they overcome sin? Because he'll bring to remembrance these great truths of who he is. This is how you overcome sin. You think about Christ. You think about who he is. All that he has promised. And it is the Holy Spirit that will bring these things to to your mind. And cause these believers like Peter to remember, even after his great denial, what is his response? Confession and love for Christ. He'll teach you, teach you in the sense of illuminating your heart to understand the significance of God's Word. I read lectures and view them from time to time. It's amazing to see those that are just scholars dealing with the technical aspects of the truth of God's Word but yet don't seem to see the significance of what they just said. It's one thing just to read these words on a page. It's another thing to note the significance of them. I think I've given my testimony about how I heard about the gospel, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that Jesus Christ would atone for that sin, that I needed to repent and believe and trust him, and that he would regenerate my heart. Yeah, that's the facts about it, but how does that become faith? That comes through the work of the Holy Spirit, Changing the dynamic of the heart. So where you respond in faith. Faith isn't something that you just conjure up by affirming the facts. The facts are there. They're indisputable. The facts about the Jesus Christ's life. The facts about his incarnation. The facts about his perfection in life. No one could accuse him of anything. The facts of his resurrection. They're all there. But what's going to bring about faith? It's going to have to be a supernatural power and work of the Holy Spirit. And, beloved, if you want that, come. He will refuse no one who comes to him. The Holy Spirit will also comfort, comfort the believer in the sense that he will strengthen the believer. Barnhouse describes it this way concerning the work of the Holy Spirit. He is a ramrod down your backbone to make you stand for the truth, to make you take the right side, even though that is the minority. The Comforter gives you strength to stand up in the face of something that is vile and evil. Do you know him? Does he dwell within you? This promise that Jesus has given is forever. Note that in verse 16. Another of the same kind, and he's going to be with you how long? Forever. Under the old covenant, the idea of the Holy Spirit was that it, he would come in certain circumstances when needed and situations, but always seemed to be in a temporal sense. It wasn't permanent. Often it was conditioned by the state of that person at the time, or for some that God wanted to accomplish. But here, note, the promise is forever. It is permanent. When someone confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, they are then sealed by the Holy Spirit, Paul would say in Ephesians, until the day of redemption. This is a unique dwelling with man through this work of the Holy Spirit. The promise is not temporal, it is eternal for all of those who confess Christ is Lord. And truly, then, the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, is brought about, perfected in the person of the Holy Spirit. And notice here, in describing who he is, verse 17 of chapter 14, he says he is the spirit of truth. If you remember reading through, as we've gone through the Gospel of John, who is Jesus? He is truth. He is the way, the truthful, and the right, and the only way to God. Here is this Spirit that is of the same essence, that is absolute truth. Christ, truth, incarnate. Here, the Holy Spirit dwelling in absolute truth. And notice here the distinction, though, in giving and promising of this Holy Spirit. This isn't blanketed to the whole world. Because the world, notice verse 17, it cannot receive him. It's impossible to receive the Holy Spirit. Because why? They neither see him or they don't even know him. So how, how is that going to be manifested? Through the miraculous work of regeneration to change the heart of the believer. To both receive and to see and to truly know. There is an internal witness then for the life of the believer. This promise that is given is not a promise of some sort of force, if you will, like some sort of Star Wars type idea. May the power be with you or the force be with you. No, This is actually a person that is being sent just like Jesus Christ. Notice verse 17. It uses the pronoun he. He dwells with you and will be in you. Not it, but he. Look down to verse 20. You know that I am in the Father and, and you in and me. He's talking about this union in Christ and, and I in you. Whoever keeps my commandments and keep whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And how is that love expressed? I will love him and manifest myself to him. He's with and in This is a person, a he, that dwells, not a force to be wielded, but a person to be in submission to. Not a mystical force, but a person. That's what's called for. This is confused quite a bit in our day. J.I. Packer comments, Christian people are not in doubt as to the work that Christ did. Think about this. They know what he, that he redeemed man by his atoning death. And even if they differ among themselves as to exactly what was involved, the average Christian, is, however, is in complete fog as to what the work of the Holy Spirit does. Some talk of the Spirit of Christ in the way that one would talk about the Spirit of Christmas as a vague cultural religiosity. Some think of the Spirit as inspiring the moral convictions of unbelievers like Gandhi or the mystics like Rudolf Steiner. But most perhaps do not think of the Holy Spirit at all and have no positive ideas of any sort about what he does. They are for practical purposes in the same position as the disciples whom Paul met at Ephesus who said, quote, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. (laughs) R.A. Torrey adds, the the conception of the Holy Spirit as a divine influence or power that we are somehow to get a hold of and use leads to self-exaltation and self-sufficiency. One who so thinks of the Holy Spirit and who at the same time imagines that he has received the Holy Spirit will almost inevitably be full of spiritual pride and strut about as if he belonged to some superior order of Christians. He went on to say that some people he hears says, well, I'm a Holy Ghost man or a Holy Ghost woman. But if we grasp the thought that the Holy Spirit is a divine Person, note this, of infinite majesty, glory, and holiness and power, who in marvelous condescension has come into our hearts to make his abode there and take possession of our lives and make use of them, it will put us in the dust and keep us in the dust. I can think of no thought more humbling or more overwhelming than the thought of a divine of the person of a divine majesty and glory dwells in my heart and is ready to even use me. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit is not a divine gimmick. He doesn't perform tricks for our amusement. He's not for sale. Simon the magician, you'll find him in Acts chapter 8, seemed to come to Christ but then yet recognized this great power that was granted to the apostles, and he wanted to have this power also so that he can lay hands on people and they could receive the Holy Spirit. You ever seen that in television? Here's Peter's response, but Peter says to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You, neither, you have neither part in this lot or this matter For your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart might be forgiven. It's a totally different attitude, isn't it? The Holy Spirit is a person. He's a person with personal actions. He's promised to be a counselor and a comforter for Christians. There is a distinction, if you'll notice in our text of John 14, between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They have coordinate rank in that the Holy Spirit, he has equal power and is sent. And if you remember the Trinitarian formula in our great commission to baptize people in what? The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's a person to which you can grieve. And then as Ananias and Sapphira found out, you can lie to as well. And the consequences for lying to God is very grave. Don't ever lie to God. He is distinguished from his gifts that he indeed does and empowers. The name of God is directly given to him. So what is the call then to be filled then with the spirit? It is simply then to be controlled by the one who dwells within To be controlled, that is, to be submitted to him. The demonstration which will be expressed in your life, Paul will describe in both Ephesians and Colossians as singing hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart. That means in the very mind. Where it responds in giving thanks to the Father and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ submission to people in ways that are appropriate to your relationship various relationship is hard to do and here the spirit works in the heart of the Christian to overcome his flesh and to submit to one another in ways that are appropriate to our various relationships and the various good works that need to be accomplished by the Christian for which they're created, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, too. Paul will describe the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit. What does it look like? Not one thing, many things love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. All of these things are fulfillment of the laws of Christ, accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit in those he dwells. Finally, beyond the promise of this given person, I want you to note in verse, well, we'll go to 21 and finish it out through 26, this promise of this person fulfills this Statement God has made that he would dwell with men. Those that are in Christ are certainly loved by the Father and they're loved by the Son. And beyond that, the Son will manifest himself to them, verse 21. We're united to Christ. This mutual love between the Father and the Son then is manifested to those that are in Christ says, I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, Judas, verse 22, this is Judas, a true follower of Christ, not Judas Iscariot, as the text notes, who is, has been sent out, the betrayer. He wants to know, well, how are we going to, to know this and it, what distinction is this between us and the world? Judas recognized there is a distinction in the love of God in Christ. And he wants to know how this works out. Jesus says, We will come to him, verse 23, and make our home with him. Not with anyone, but who, as he's described these multiple times, those that are truly regenerate, those who truly love him, who are demonstrated through obeying his word. What's going to happen? Well, we will actually come. We will actually make our home with him. This is God with us. Coming. And notice here in the text, do you see the word we? We will dwell with him. Oftentimes, and I understand why, and I've thought this way too, when we think of the Holy Spirit, we often have a tendency to Segment and isolate, but God is never divided. <laughs> he's one being. And so, in this sense, here is the triune God that will indeed dwell with man. That's what he's saying. We will be with him. We will come. We're going to send the Holy Spirit, and we're coming too, if you will. It's the Father who will give another helper. Who? Even the spirit of truth, verse 17. And look at verse 17. He says, he says, you know him. He dwells with you and he will be with you. You, you already know him. This isn't somebody they don't know. Well, what, what is he getting at? I think the explanation, you could drop down to verse 8, where, the, where Philip is trying to understand God... And he asks Jesus, show us the Father. And what's Jesus' response to Philip? Verse 9. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? What's he saying? I'm God. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. And can we extrapolate that to say you have seen the Holy Spirit? has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you even say show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? He dwells with you and he will be in you. Here's the, the promise. Fulfilled by sending the helper. It isn't sending some lesser being. It isn't sending some empowerment. It's the very person. The third member of the triune God that is coming. And so there is a sense in which you can think about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As Paul would put it this way in many places in the letters to the church, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Christ in you, 8, 10 of Romans, if Christ is in you, 3, 17 of Ephesians, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 127 of Colossians, this mystery that God made known is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. As I mentioned before, in the Old Testament sense, God was with his people, but very much in a temporal sense often. Here, the promise is that he will be with you and in you for how long? Forever. In that sense, then, those that are in Christ, Paul would describe your body then being a temple of the Holy Spirit, of the very God himself. Jesus says in verse 17 of our text, you know him. (laughs) Who do you know? The spirit of the truth. The Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Your heart can become a heaven on earth as you commune with the Lord and worship him. This is a unique promise that Christ has given to his disciples then and now and all who follow Christ, that he will send the person of the Holy Spirit to dwell with you. As I alluded to before, verse 26, what's the benefits of the Spirit who the Father and the Son send, this indwelling of the triune God in the life of the believer, that he indeed is the one who will teach you all things. I can sit here and explain all of these truths to you and give you facts. But beloved, it's going to take a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to pierce your soul, and teach you these truths. I will stand in great confidence and faith in proclaiming because it is the words of Christ that will indeed function as a sword to split apart your heart. And if you hear the words of Christ, I implore you to respond directly to him. It is he, he, this Holy Spirit, who will work in a dynamic way to teach you all things and to bring to remembrance all these words of Christ. Jesus has promised to leave peace with his people. He is sending the helper, another of the same kind, forever. Not as the world gives peace, he actually sends peace. So therefore, beloved, don't let your hearts be troubled, and don't let them be afraid. Look to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending the Son to certainly die for our sin, atone for them all, and provide the righteousness that we need to stand before you. But beyond that, today we praise you that you have not left us alone But indeed, for all who love Christ, you have indwelt us with the Holy Spirit and sealed us to the day of redemption. Truly, you are indeed with all of your beloved. And I pray for each one who may be going through various times of great turbulence and difficulty that the peace of Christ will be that which settles our hearts and minds and removes all trouble and fear. Even though we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. May we find our peace in Christ alone. Amen. Beloved, you may respond directly to Christ in any way He's spoken to you this day. Take a moment, reflect on these words, and respond directly where you are. Take a moment now. Father, we're thankful for the love that manifests itself in Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray indeed that your name would be glorified in the highest and that on earth those with whom you are well pleased would have great peace.